Good morning, brothers and sisters. Happy Easter. I get weird looks in the grocery store when I continue to wish people happy Easter. They're like, that happened several weeks ago. It's like, what are you talking about? We're still celebrating Easter. As Catholics, we have a whole season, an Easter season, which we celebrate the great resurrection of our Lord. And obviously, throughout these Sundays, we've been given the resurrection accounts. Church wants us to continually focus upon them. Today, the account where Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But when I was praying and meditating over the readings this week, uh, especially over the first reading from the Acts of the Apostles, there was one word in particular that stood out to me, and I couldn't help but fixate on it. It seemed a little confusing at first. You see, Peter here in the Acts of the Apostles, this is, of course, after the ascension into heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit. He's out with the apostles, and they're preaching Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the Savior of the world. And he's talking to the Jews, and he's reprimanding them. He's saying that you guys had him crucified. You rejected the Christ. But now if you repent and turn to him, you can be saved. And when he describes this to the Jewish people, he says that you had him crucified through lawless men. That's a very interesting adjective to use. Now, he's referring to, in this case, the Romans. The Jews physically didn't crucify Jesus. They basically coerced and forced Pontius Pilate to do it for them. And yet, Peter calls the Romans lawless. I thought that was fascinating. Because if, if you know your history, all civil law that we understand came from Greece and Rome to the known world. Basically, Rome brought about civil order and law. They spread it throughout their entire Roman Empire. And historically, when we study, we find that we attribute most civil laws to Rome. Why would Peter call the Romans lawless? That, that just seemed shocking to me. And so I sat and I prayed and I meditated on this and I realized something. Peter is a Jew and he's speaking to Jews. And so from a Jewish perspective, everyone who isn't Jewish is lawless. It doesn't matter whether they have civil laws or not. They're all lawless. They're all pagans, unbelievers, lawless men. And the reason is because they don't have God's law. They may have earthly law, even natural law in some instances, but not divine law. They don't know the mind and will of God. Only the Israelites were given this. This is one of the marks of, how would, you, how would I describe it? Marks of pride for an Israelite. We know the mind and heart of God. We know his law because he gave it to us. He didn't give it to you. The rest of you lawless pagan people. They prided themselves on this gift of God's law. And for them, for the good Jew, they understood that God's law was not only a restriction in how they were to live, do this and don't do that, that's what laws typically tell us, but also it protected them and kept them free and happy. I've, I've used the example before of like playing a, in a sport. Like take any sport, for example, 
like soccer, there are rules or laws that govern the sport. Boundaries, you have to work within the boundaries, and if you're not the goalie, you can't use your hands to touch the ball, and everything like this, all of the different rules. So if you follow the rules, you can play the game. And you're protected inside the game. If you don't follow the rules, then you can't play the game. You're, you're without law, basically. You're living outside of God's design. And so the Jews saw this gift of law as the greatest gift that God bestowed upon them. And he did it through his prophets, through Moses, by speaking his word to them. Now, we as Catholics understand that Jesus Christ is the word of God. And so what the old law symbolized, Jesus Christ is. The difference between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christ is one is verbal and the other is incarnate, an actual living law. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the living law of God. He's the new law, the completion, the fullness of the law. The old law from the Old Testament only prepared the way for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the completion of everything that was taught and given to the Israelites before. Remember what Jesus said, not a single letter or dot on a letter will pass away from the law. I did not come to remove the law, but to fulfill it. And that's what he does. He is the fulfillment of the law. And as we know, that law in Christ is love. St. Paul tells us that the summary of all of the law and the prophets as revealed in Christ is love. And he manifests that love most perfectly through his death and resurrection. And he says, I have now given you a new commandment, a new law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason this fixation on the law is so important to Israelites, and as it should be to us, is because law directs us and tells us, like I said, what to do and what not to do. Basically, it lets us know the rules. Every family knows this. You need rules in the family so that everybody gets along. Every church family, every society needs rules and laws. It's, it's necessary. Without law, there is no order. Without order, there's no interaction. In fact, even on the level of physics, just in science alone, it's the laws of the universe that allow the universe to function. You remove the laws, and the universe falls apart. But laws, by their very nature, not only require actions, but also restrict actions. So there's a simple law in physics. Two objects in the material universe cannot take up this, the same space-time. So, for example, to simplify, my hand and this candle cannot take up the same space. Whenever I try to put my hand where the candle is, the candle resists me. Now, if they could take up the same space, I couldn't touch the candle. My hand would pass right through it. And then I couldn't interact with the candle. I couldn't lift it. I couldn't light it. I couldn't do anything with it. That law enables me to interact and actually have a relationship with the candle. The things that limit and restrict and govern my actions and the actions of the candle. So law enables interaction. 
and ultimately we can think of that on a, on a human level as relationships. Rules enable relationships. Without rules, there are no relationships. There are some rules that restrict the relationship and some rules that require action in the relationship. But ultimately, that's the purpose of law and rules. And that's what Christ has come to give us. Because as good as anyone's civil laws may be, they can only help you relate to other people civilly. But you need divine laws and rules to have a relationship with God. And that's where we as Catholics have the greatest gift. In a sense, like the Israelites of old, we can take great pride, not the bad pride, but the good pride that we have been given God's own law, his teachings, his life, so that we can have a relationship with him and through that bring others, bring the rest of the lawless people of the world to Christ. And these aren't just the Ten Commandments in the moral code. Yes, those are some of the laws, some of the rules. But first and foremost, the laws that enable us to have a relationship with God, with our Father, are the sacramental laws, the sacraments. They're rules. Jesus says, you want to go to heaven? Be baptized. After you're baptized, he says, and you commit sin, you want to be forgiven? Go to confession. If you want to be strengthened with my life, receive communion. Say prayers. Be confirmed. When you're married, get married through the church as a sacrament. When you're sick or ill or dying, ask the priest to anoint you. You do these things and you will have a relationship with me. And because of that relationship, when you die, I will take you to be with me in heaven. It's the rules, the laws that govern our life with God that are so important to us and that should be a great consolation to us because I don't have to figure out on my own whether I have a relationship with God or not. All I know is the church teaches rightly, the Bible attests to this as well, but Christ teaches that you do these things in this way and you'll have a relationship with me. That's it. It's that simple, and it's supposed to be. So the greatest works that anyone can perform as a human being are the very works of Jesus Christ in the sacraments. There's actually nothing greater. When you compare Catholicism to a lot of other Christian denominations, one of the things you find is the other ones stress, rightly so, works of mercy going out and taking care of those in need and, and all of this stuff. And that's good. That's necessary. I've preached on it. We have to do those kind of things. Christ commands it. And as true and good as all of those things are, just think about it logically, how could they compare to an act that is dedicated to God himself? It's one thing to love God through your neighbor, as necessary and good as that is, but that's not the first commandment. The first commandment is to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. You love him first. Once you've done that, then you go out and do works of mercy and love your neighbor. The sacraments are the means by which we offer love and adoration to God. 
They're how we relate to him. And they, like anything else in the church, is governed by laws, by rules. For example, the greatest sacrament of all the Eucharist, the mass, the liturgy, is governed in the code by how it's to be celebrated. There's actually a very specific way an order in which I must celebrate Mass. If I don't do it in that order, I actually break the law, God's law. Now, how do I know that order? Well, the church tells me, but where did the church get it? Well, the church got it actually from our gospel today. It's one of the reasons this specific resurrection account is so important to the church. Now, we know Jesus has already celebrated the Last Supper several days earlier. He then died on the cross, rose from the dead. So this is the day of the resurrection, the first Sunday, Easter day. And he appears to these two disciples, men, walking to Emmaus. Now, there he is walking with them, talking with them, but they don't realize it's Jesus, as the scriptures say, because he prevented them from seeing him. So basically, he looked like some Jewish guy, just walking along the road. The, these men knew Jesus personally. They knew the sound of his voice, and he hid all of this from them. He just seemed like a stranger, a strange Jew, and they had this long conversation. Now, what does Jesus do after they explain to him their sorrow and grief about the fact that somebody they thought was the Messiah has just been killed? He reprimands them. And he says, he opened the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. He explained to them all of the Old Testament teachings that referred to him and why he was supposed to suffer, die, and rise. But again, they just thought it was some other guy telling them about Jesus. He was basically giving a homily, a sermon. And then when they get to their destination, again, this is interesting, it says Jesus was planning on going farther but they pleaded with him, stay with us. They were so moved by his words. And then what did they do? They went and had a meal together. And in the middle of that meal, Jesus takes some bread, says a blessing, and breaks it. And the moment he does that, and he hands them the Eucharist, Holy Communion, it says they recognized it was the Lord, and he vanished from their eyes. Then, of course, they, they don't sleep. They get up and they run back to Jerusalem, which they took all afternoon to, to leave. And they share their story with the other apostles who have also seen the Lord resurrected. And they say so beautifully that our Lord was made known to them in the breaking of bread. You see, the Mass is composed of two primary parts the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Every mass must begin with the reading of Old and New Testament and gospel. And then a minister, a priest or a deacon, preaches a homily or a sermon explaining the scriptures. Well, that's what Jesus did. The first part of the day was spent talking about the scriptures and explaining their right interpretation to the disciples. That's the liturgy of the word. And then what happens? They finally get to their destination and they have a meal. The liturgy of the Eucharist. And what happens during the liturgy of the Eucharist? A blessing is said over the bread. Then the bread is broken and distributed to the disciples. And they are supposed to recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread. That it's not 
bread any longer. It has now become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. See, our Lord gave the pattern of the Mass to the apostles, not just at the Last Supper, but even in the resurrection account, because what he was doing is he was tying together both mysteries. The Eucharist is not just a remembrance of my passion and death. It's also a remembrance of my resurrection. It's the whole Paschal mystery. That's why we call it that. The Paschal mystery is just not the death of our Lord. It's his suffering, death, and resurrection. It's the whole event. Every liturgy, every mass is a celebration of the Paschal mystery, which is the work of God. The work of God. And when I participate in the Mass, I am truly, not just me as a priest, but everyone, participating in the work of Jesus Christ, who is God. There is no greater work that you can do. There is no greater work. Which is why, as Catholics, we have always stressed participating and life in the sacraments, first and foremost. And then from that sacramental relationship with God, then you go out to do works of mercy in the community. The love and life that you've received here through these works, you now go forth and share in secular works. That's what you do. This is how God wants us to live, and in the end, this is how we will be judged. And we know this. Many think that faith alone saves. Well, that's ludicrous. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that. In fact, everywhere in the scriptures does it say that's not true. And very clearly in one of Peter's letters, as we heard in our second reading, God the Father says he will judge us, how? Based on each one's works. On our works. Does that mean I'm saved by my works? No. I'm saved through faith and the grace of Jesus Christ. That is a free gift offered to me through his works. But once saved, I will now be judged based on that. And if the works of God bore no fruit in my life, meaning they didn't create works of love in and through me, then I'll be judged unworthy. But if the works of God begin to flow through my life and create works of love in my life and in others, then I will be judged as having been saved. That's the separation of the sheep and the goats. Works don't save us, but works are necessary for salvation. Faith, as we're taught by St. Paul, leads to salvation or justification, as he calls it. We are made just. Paul says, faith leads to justification. Faith does not justify us because works justify. Why do works justify me? Well, the works of Christ justify me and my own participation in those works, which are works themselves. The reason works justify me is because just think of the word justice. Justification has to do with rules and laws. If you're just, you follow the law. If you're unjust, you don't. And those are actions. Those are works. We have to keep this in mind as Catholics. Now, we know it intuitively just as being raised Catholic. 
but it's important to know this as well so that when it comes time for us to defend our beliefs in the teachings of Christ and the church to others, we know the words to say. We know how to, at least verbally, justify what we do. So the sacraments are the greatest of works because they are the works of Jesus Christ himself. And whenever we participate in them, even in confession, I'm participating in the work of Jesus Christ. When you go to confession, you're participating in Christ's work. There's nothing greater that you can offer to God than a life in the sacraments and then flowing from the sacraments, the works of mercy to the rest of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.